May I visit with you about the American adventure? From the pilgrims who came here nearly three and one half centuries ago, until this very day, people have sacrificed. They have contributed. They've built themselves into the fiber and being of America. It is from them that we receive this land as a legacy. of flame. Let us hold it high and light up the sky with praise of our gallant men. Tyrants must know. Now, just as then, they cannot stand. Not as long as there are gallant men. from beyond the sea, in small groups, in tiny ships, bobbing upon that great gray sea because they wanted a new chance, a new life. In every sense, they were pilgrims, men in search of a sacred place, a place made sacred because there men could be free. Among that assortment of men crossing the seas were some Puritans 
who had broken away from the Church of England and gone to live in Holland for a time. Their leader was William Brewster, and he led these Puritan pilgrims on a journey bound for the new British lands in the New World, toward a place named Virginia. It was the autumn of 1620 when they sailed from England on a ship named Mayflower. Sixty-four days they sailed the stormy planet, tossed upon the forbidding waves, battered by the terrible winds. But on November 9, 1620, the pilgrims saw the new world. They were not in Virginia, where they were bound, but at Cape Cod, and there they decided to land. Some impulsive and maybe hot-headed young men decided that since they were not in Virginia, they were not bound by the laws of England, and announced when they came ashore, they would use their own liberty, for none had power to command them. But William Brewster and others knew that men need laws, or they cannot live. Brewster therefore joined with several other men of the expedition to draft a civil body politic. In other words, a set of laws to govern their new home. That set of laws was called the Mayflower Compact. It has been called a startling revelation of the capacity of Englishmen to govern themselves. It was an example of Englishmen's determination to have the rule of law. And it became a cornerstone for the land of law and order which we have inherited down through the years. The Mayflower Compact acknowledged that the law of men rests upon the firmer foundation of the law of God. This was what the Mayflower Compact said. In the name of God, amen. We, whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign lord, King James, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents, solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue hereof, do enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. In the years of 1775 and 1776, there was a fever of revolution in the British colonies in America.
In Lexington and Concord, the embattled farmers stood against the British Army in the spring of 1775 and fired the shot heard round the world. A year later, in the spring of 1776, the Americans were ready for a complete break with the British crown. By June of 1776, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was the focus of the American agitation for a settlement of its troubles with England. There, in the gracious city of brotherly love, leaders from all the 13 British colonies met in a Continental Congress. John Hancock was the president, and among the others meeting in the Pennsylvania State House were John and Samuel Adams of Massachusetts, Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, and Richard Henry Lee of Virginia. What an assortment of men that was. Intellectuals, politicians, farmers, revolutionaries, the best men in the 13 colonies. On the 7th of June, 1776, a Virginia farmer named Richard Henry Lee took the floor and introduced a resolution. It was seconded by John Adams, a Massachusetts lawyer. That resolution was this. Resolved that these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. The fat was in the fire. That resolution for independence was turned over to a committee of five members, headed by Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, easily the most sophisticated intellectual member of that band of daring men who made up the body of the Continental Congress. The committee selected Jefferson to make a draft of a formal declaration that would proclaim to the world those daring and dangerous words, these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. Jefferson started to work in a room at Market and 7th Streets in Philadelphia. And by June 28th of that year, the committee was ready to make its report to the whole Congress. The Congress made 86 changes in Jefferson's wording of the Declaration. He thought the changes were deplorable. The Congress dropped 480 words and left 1,337. It was now the 2nd of July, 1776. On that date, July 2nd, 1776, the Lee Adams Resolution for Independence was adopted by the Continental Congress. Thus it is that July 2nd is recorded as the actual date 
of the decision by the representatives of the people of the 13 American colonies to be free of English rule. But the date we celebrate is July 4th, for it was on that date that the Continental Congress published the formal Declaration of Independence. Those 1,337 words proclaimed the independence of the 13 colonies and list the charges against the King of England which drove the colonies to that decision. But the words at the beginning and the end of that timeless document are the ones that truly stirred the America of that time and which even today stir the oppressed peoples of our modern world. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And so a band of men in the State House of Philadelphia put into words the aspirations of what history would record as the first successful anti-colonial war in history. But the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence were not simply expressing their desire to be free men. They were ready to fight for that freedom and they so stated at the conclusion of the Declaration in these words, and for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Every country, every people has a symbol. It is an outward sign of the unity of that country and its people. The sign is a flag, a banner, whose colors and design are the symbolic representation of what that country and its people stand for. We Americans have had many flags, and not all of them resemble the flag we proudly salute today. For example, the flag that flew over American soldiers of January 1st, 1776, had 13 red and white stripes. But in the corner was the British cross of St. George and St. Andrew. 
At Concord on the 19th of April in 75, the Minutemen were said to have carried a flag with a silver arm with sword on a red field. In February of 1776, a member of the Continental Congress offered a yellow flag with the picture of a rattlesnake about to strike and the words, don't tread on me. Finally, on June 14, 1777, the Second Continental Congress at Philadelphia decided that the flag of the independent American states should be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. No one knows for sure who designed that first flag. Some believe it was a member of the Continental Congress, Francis Hopkins. Others say it was a Philadelphia woman named Betsy Ross. But no matter, there have been many flags. With each new state in the Union, a new star has been added to the field. And that original constellation of 13 is now 50. And each of these new constellations has flown with glory over a nation that is sought to live in peace, but has often been led to the fields of battle. And it was during one of these battles that a young man from Baltimore was moved to write a poem. And that poem itself has become a symbol of this nation this people and their flag. It was September, 1814. The United States of America was again at war with Great Britain. History records it as the War of 1812. Again, British troops were on American soil. And on the night of September 13th, 1814, the British were bombarding the city of Baltimore, Maryland. The British fleet had sailed into the Chesapeake Bay after the British Army had captured and burned the nation's capital at Washington. On September 13th, the fleet opened a bombardment of Fort McHenry, which stood guard at the gates of Baltimore. That bombardment was witnessed by Francis Scott Key aboard one of the British ships. Key had gone out to the fleet to secure the release of Dr. William Beans, who had been captured in the Battle of Washington. Key succeeded in securing the doctor's release. But the two men were not allowed to leave the ship because the bombardment of Fort McHenry was in progress. Darkness came, and as it did, Key stood on the deck of that British ship, not knowing if he would see the stars and stripes flying over Baltimore when dawn came. Key stood in the fading light and saw the star-spangled banner flying in the breeze over Fort McHenry. Through the night, he stood and watched. Rockets burst over the fort, and in their fiery glare, 
he saw that the flag was still there, flying on the breeze. The rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that the flag was still there. Dawn, the light of day, the battle still, and Francis Scott Key, standing on that British ship, raised his eyes to the skies above and battled Fort McHenry. And there, on the shore dimly seen through the mists of the deep, he saw that battered, tattered banner waving on the morning's first breeze, now catching the gleam of the morning's first beam, in full glory reflected, now shines on the stream. Deeply moved by what he saw and had seen, Key jotted down the beginnings of a poem, which he called The Defense of Fort McHenry. And this is that poem. Oh, say can you see, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight, or the ramparts we watched, were so gallantly streaming, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. On the shore dimly seen through the mists of the deep, where the foe's haughty host in dread silence reposes, what is that which the breeze o'er the towering steep, as it fitfully blows, half conceals, half discloses? Now it catches the gleam of the morning's first beam, in full glory reflected, now shines on the stream. Tis the star-spangled banner, long may it wave, o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. And where is that band who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion a home and a country should leave us no more. Their blood has washed out their foul footsteps' pollution. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Oh, thus be it ever, when freemen shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must, when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust and the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave.
It was autumn in the year 1862. The Civil War was in its second year. It was going badly for the Union forces. General Burnside failed at the Battle of Fredericksburg in Virginia and lost 12,000 men. His second attempt at the same place proved ineffective because of bad weather. And so in a neurotic moment, he issued an order dismissing all of his officers and then asked President Lincoln to approve the order or to accept his resignation. Lincoln had no choice save to accept Burnside's resignation. Burnside was succeeded by General Fighting Joe Hooker. At Chancellorsville, General Robert E. Lee, leader of the Confederate forces, attacked the Union Army and compelled it to fall back. It was a costly Confederate victory. For the Union Army, it was a dismal retreat. General Hooker submitted a second plan to Lincoln. The president would not approve, and he relieved Hooker of command and appointed General Meade. Meade had hoped to force General Lee to battle in Maryland, just south of the Pennsylvania border. But Lee advanced to Gettysburg, and there the armies of North and South clashed under a torrid July sun. On both sides, the losses were ghastly. General Lee withdrew, and the Union forces scored a victory. This was indeed a turning point in the Civil War. Thousands of dead, both the blue and the gray, were given temporary burial where they had fallen. People were disturbed over these temporary burials. The governor of Pennsylvania accepted a suggestion to buy 17 acres and make it a soldier's national cemetery. The plan was accepted, and then began the reinterment of 3,814 bodies. The dedication of this cemetery, now a much larger shrine, was set for November 19, 1863. Edward Everett, a very noted classical orator of that day, was engaged to make the principal address. President Lincoln was invited to attend and make some appropriate remarks. At 10 in the morning of that day, the parade started from the village of Gettysburg. The ceremonies began with a prayer, followed by the oration by Edward Everett. It covered two hours. By today's standards, it was long and ponderous. There was a hymn, and then President Lincoln. He made a short address. 
In fact, it contained but 272 words, and it required but three minutes to deliver. According to press accounts of that day, the audience was disappointed. So was the cabinet and other officials. Lincoln himself was rather dispirited. Most of the press failed to mention Lincoln's short address. The London Times referred to it as ludicrous and dull and commonplace. But time places things in proper perspective. The two-hour oration of Everett is entombed in old and dusty books, seldom read or referred to. But the address of Lincoln is lived and lived. It has been carved on granite. It has been graven in bronze in all parts of the earth. More important than all this, it has been enshrined in the living, pulsing memorial of the hearts of his countrymen. As Lincoln read from two small sheets of paper, not once did he use the personal pronoun. As history made its appraisal, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was deemed deathless and imperishable, and this was it. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long do it. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. But it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work, which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth.
the United States of America has always had close connections with the countries of Europe, and the closest of them has been with England, in spite of two wars between England and America. But America has always had another good friend in Europe, the people and the country of France. A Frenchman, Lafayette, helped the Continental Army fight the British in the War of the Revolution. Later, the ideals of the American Revolution were reflected in a revolution against their own king by the French. And as the years went by, Americans and Frenchmen found many things on which they agreed, many things to admire in each other. Then one day, a French historian who was a very great admirer of the United States, an historian by the name of Edouard de Laboulaye, suggested that this long period of friendship between America and France be remembered. De Laboulaye suggested that France give the United States some kind of monument. Another Frenchman, Auguste Bartholdi, came to America in June 1871. He took a look at the great harbor of New York City, a big, bustling, busy seaport. And Bartholdi suddenly saw how the idea of a monument could become a reality. Bartholdi pictured a huge statue, a new colossus, standing on that island in New York Harbor, a symbol of America's open door. It would be a statue, a statue of the goddess of liberty, facing out to the open sea and holding a torch, a lamp, a great light that could be seen far out in the ocean to guide and welcome the peoples of the world through America's golden door. The Statue of Liberty is a symbol of the long and deep friendship between the people of France and the people of the United States. But even more, a symbol of freedom itself. In truth, a Statue of Liberty, its blazing light shining out in a dark world. A glowing symbol of the meaning of the words of a poem which are engraved on a tablet within the pedestal on which the Statue of Liberty stands. The poem was written by Emma Lazarus, titled The New Colossus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. 
Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. The American adventure is not over. The United States of America is not yet two centuries old. Through those years, countless Americans have sacrificed, contributed, built, and labored. Many have died on far-off fields of battle. And even at this hour they die. Not for some hope of worldly gain, but to keep that freedom which Americans have been working for and dying for through these decades. The legacy which our forebears have given to us is freedom. But to keep it, we must be willing, as President Eisenhower said, to dare all for our country. President Kennedy told us to ask not what our country can do for us, but what we can do for our country. And he reminded us, in your hands, my fellow citizens, more than in mine, will rest the final success or failure of our course. And what can one citizen do? What can one man, one woman, one teenager, one child do? He can keep faith with his past and he can remind himself each day of that great and glorious legacy which history has left him. And he can pledge himself to be true to that legacy with these words. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Yeah.